This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about Queen Anne of Bohemia, how queens could work to mitigate the worst excesses of kings, what childlessness meant in a royal context, and Anne's influence on English culture. I am just beyond excited to be joined by the brilliant Kristen Gaiman. She is a historian of late medieval England and a lecturer at the University of Toledo. Her research interests include the Islamic Caliphate, sexuality and gender in the Middle Ages and early modern Europe, and how couples coped with childlessness. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start you off with an annoying question, which is what I like to do. Just give you a huge thing that no one could possibly answer in even an hour. But if we're talking about Anne of Bohemia, who is she? Like as a woman, here she is. We know that she becomes Queen of England. But who is she before she ever comes on the English scene? Wow. Yeah, that's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to start with the most basic kind of stuff, Anne was the daughter of Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV, who is such a big name, and Mm. certainly in the Czech context, which I know you know way more about, he is, (laughs) I mean, they still love him in Prague, even right Mm -hmm. now. I mean, you go and Mm -hmm. visit, and if he has anything to do with it, it's labeled, hey, Charles IV did this, or Charles IV, (laughs) he's like George Washington slept here. It's like Charles IV slept here. So that was obviously very powerful (laughs) to have such a famous and important father. Of course, he died when she was still pretty young because her mother was his fourth wife. And so he was kind of getting up there by the time she was born. But of course, even if he wasn't around her whole life, I feel as though medieval people, they're very conscious of, particularly the elites, they're very conscious of their background and Mm. their status. And so I think she would have been pretty comfortable with her status and known that she was an important person. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think sometimes I've read some fictional versions of Anne. There was kind of a time in, I want to say the 40s maybe, where people were Mm. writing some plays and stuff about Anne. And in one of them, she's shown as kind of very 
mousy almost, you know, oh, uh, sort of thing. And I just think that's definitely wrong. No queen in medieval Europe <laughs> is going to be like that. And so sometimes I wonder if that's kind of the Victorian influence on how yeah. people see Anne, because she was kind of talked about as very angel in the home a little bit. She was a good woman, so she must have been quiet and not assuming. <laughs> that was not a good woman in as a medieval queen. You to be a bit more assertive. And I think Anne certainly would. She was an important person. Her father was an important person. And mm. I think she would have known that. I mean, and her brothers are important people. Yeah, her brothers too, are right? really, really important. And the other thing I think that influences it is, of course, England now is more important, I guess you might say, than the Czech Republic. But that was the opposite yeah. <laughs> in the period. And so that, I think, is another thing, is that Anne came from a more important and certainly a more cosmopolitan court than mm. Richard did. And so I think that also would have helped make her not mousy. You know, she yeah. would have known that she was an important person. She would have been ready to be queen, which, of course, right. is one thing that always... When you stop to think about it, I mean, she became queen at 16. That's so young. And mm -hmm. that's young. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't done very much by the time I was 28. <laughs> so I'm very glad that I'm still kicking because that's just such a short time. So. Yeah, it's such an interesting one, right? Because she has, you know, being a queen, right? She's got this big life. And then you forget that, you know, this begins when she's a teenager. Of course. And then she never sees her family again, which is not uncommon for mm -hmm. medieval queens, but also really intense to think about that. Yeah, I write yeah. them letters, but it's not the same thing. And of course, people in medieval Europe writing letters, they know that it's not just for the person who's reading it, you know, oh, I write this letter to my mom, but it's not just for your mother. So even when you're writing a letter to someone, it's within a context. It's not as though when I text my mom today, hey, mom, what's up? It's very casual and really shows a lot about our relationship. But a letter in the Middle Ages has to do a lot more work than just, mm. hey, mom, how's it going? I think that's also hard to imagine because you leave your home and then you don't sort of get that intimate connection ever again with your mother or your siblings mm. or the, whoever it is that you left behind. It's interesting because from a Czech context for when Anne gets sent off to England, when there are first these kind of proposal letters sent like, hey, I heard you've got an extra princess kicking around. May we have her? The Czech court literally sends ambassadors to England because they're like, what's this England? Anyone heard of London? You know, and they sent out ambassadors to be like, can we send? Anne here because they're like I hear they have a lot of sheep and granted everybody knows that like England's producing a lot of wool they're very rich but from a continental perspective I mean we're talking about she's born in the capital of the Holy Roman Empire she speaks five languages and they kind of are like oh hi yeah London uh and you know eventually it gets said yeah you can go off but I guess what are we talking about when we're talking about kind of late 14th century England? What are the facts on the ground? What is she getting sent into? So just like in the Czech Republic, it's post-plague. So there's been 
huge population decline. And of course, something mm-hmm. I always talk about with my students is we don't know for sure how much because we don't know how many people were there before. We don't mm-hmm. actually know how many people died and we don't know how many people were left. So yep. everything is a guess, but it seems to be trending upwards. Historians are arguing, some people used to say a third, now they're like, no, it definitely was at least half. And in some places, mm-hmm. probably even more. So England's very hard hit. But of course, they're still undergoing the Hundred Years War. So it's fewer people, but there's mm-hmm. still a heavy tax burden. And like many places, the elites are trying to manipulate things in their favor by putting in wage and price controls and saying, oh, it has to be based on 1347. Oh, why did they specifically pick 1347? (laughs) Oh, that was right before the plague hit and things started to change. (laughs) Ah, sneaky. So there's a lot of discontent in that regard. Then her husband, Richard He became king as a child, which, of course, adds Mm. all sorts of other difficulties. He followed his grandfather, Edward III, who had a good reputation until kind of the end of his lifetime when he was older and his family and his mistress, they really took advantage of the king being older. And so there were certainly issues going on there politically that a lot of elites in England were casting side eye at some of Richard's uncles, thinking, you know, is this Mm -hmm. uncle, particularly John of Gaunt, is he trying to make a play for himself? So there's tension in that regard. There's never enough money, of course. And then, of course, Richard becomes king as a child, and they pass more laws, and things really come to a head in 1381 with the Peasants' Revolt, where Mm -hmm. peasants, although also kind of people that I don't want to say middle class because that's not really a thing, but people who aren't just what people think of now when you're like, ah, peasants, (laughs) you know, it's not just farming people. It's also workers in the cities who finally revolt against these wage and price controls and this poll tax where everybody has to pay the same. And I always think, of course, poll tax sounds like something that has to do with voting. But of course, in medieval England, a poll tax has to do with existing and everybody has to pay the same amount, whether you're John of Gaunt or Joe Peasant. So there's this violent uprising, or they even make it into the Tower of London. And Richard, kind of one of the high points for him of his reign, he manages to prevent them from totally sacking London. But of course, he does it by making a promise that, yeah, okay, I will get rid of serfdom. And of course, that doesn't happen. I mean, what could he really have done otherwise? I mean, of course, you have to make that promise so that they don't kill you they don't kill more people but yeah then of course as soon as you 14 year old go back to the nobles and like oh hey so i said we're gonna get rid of serfdom oh yeah like they're all totally on board with that with this 14 year old saying yeah no more serfdom like "Eh, no maybe not and of course you can easily say oh that promise was made under duress because obviously it was and so then you have a perfect reason not to do it so yeah there's some tensions and of course Mm. Anne comes Boom, right at the end. I guess it's kind of good they got that marriage negotiated before the peasants' revolt happened. Because yeah. I'm sure once the her brother would have been like, oh, no, I'm not sending my little sister. But it's actually sort of perfect for the English that the queen shows up right at the end of that mess because they're able to perfectly slot her into her role as queen immediately because... Mm. There's many people to execute, as one does, after those kinds of rebellions. But there's also many people that they don't want to execute. So they're kind of, Mm. right, how are we going to bring us all back together? And it was good for them that Anne showed up. I mean, they really put her into that role even before she got there. She's still on her way. Because, of course, 
she's a princess, so she travels so slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she's traveling it's... across Belgium, I think, and it's like it takes a week to go 90 kilometers. I was like, that's really slow, guys. <laughs> It's just like her and 16 of her besties, several horses. And I suppose you, it word gets to you that, you know, the Savoy Palace was on fire. And they'll be like, you know, let's slow it down. Slow it down, you know. And so even before she gets there, like, oh, the queen is going to secure a pardon for some of these people. And so these pardons are said to be at her intercession, even if she isn't physically there at the moment. And so kind of boom as soon as she gets there the english are like hey this is something that our queens do we need you to do it and she takes it up with gusto she's excellent at it yeah because that's the thing right i suppose that a lot of the time when people think about queens and the diplomatic work that they do we think oh yeah well obviously you intercede with your families especially the country that you're from you kind of go back and forth but there's this whole diplomatic ideal, especially in England, right, that is the queen is kind of a figurehead who represents an idea of mercy. Would you say, am I right about that? Yeah, she's very much cast in a sort of Virgin Mary role from about the 1100s on. There's kind of a change in how people do their Christianity. They become a little mm. less fire and brimstone <laughs> and a uh. little more focusing on emotions and that sort of thing. And so mm. there's a lot more focus on Jesus as being a nice guy somewhat. That Jesus <laughs> was forgiving and that Mary is part of what made Jesus forgiving because she's mm. his mom. And you always listen to your mom. Mm. And so there's very much this idea that Mary will put in a good word for you with Jesus. And so... Queens, because Mary is the queen of heaven, the queen of England will put in a good word for you with the king. You know, that's the king's her husband, not her son. Well, sometimes it's her son. So it's not perfectly, but it works. You're coming from, you know, one of the most lavish and important courts in Europe. You show up to London, everything's burnt down, and they're like, oh, thank God you're here. You know, <laughs> And I think it's quite funny because, you know, there are these really elaborate rituals she has to do around that, right? Because there's this big thing about how Richard can't lose face. So it's kind of like her going to Westminster and kneeling in front of him and being like, oh, husband, oh, ho, ho, my tears are flowing on behalf of these people for whom I have this depth of feeling. And it's like, this girl doesn't know. You know, she's talking to her husband in French. And I imagine also that how bad did Anne really feel? for these peasants. I mean, over time, when she first shows up, you know, she doesn't know Richard that well. Mm. Of course, over time, they become very close. So <laughs> maybe at the end of her, she wouldn't have been too keen on pardoning people who tried to kill him. But to me, it seems that England is very famous for these elaborate intercessory rituals. But mm. I don't think that Anne would have been entirely unprepared. There are some examples of her mother doing some similar things, but I don't think there was a whole ritual around yeah. it the way there sometimes is in England. Yeah, you get kind of similar things in the Czech context where, you know, someone needs to talk Charles down from something. A little bit less because Charles is just a little bit less of an idiot. So there is like this kind of understanding within a Czech context that once in a while the queen puts her hand up. But then also there are these funny things that will happen. Like, for example, at one point in time, Charles IV oversteps the mark, kind of trying to take rights off of the nobles. 
and then he realizes he's gone too far and he just goes, oh, those laws I wrote down burnt up. Oh, well, I guess we can't do them anymore. <laughs> Moving on. You know, and so you can do things like that in the Czech context, which are a little more private, I suppose. Whereas within the English one, it's like, no, 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 do it in front of everybody. Like, get out here. We'll call in every single person. You know, it's quite interesting because I think that Anne would have really understood, okay, well, basically, if you're told that this is how things work, then this is how things work, right? She's not stupid. She knows what queens are for. And basically, you get told this is the custom and you just go, right, right, you are. Yep, doing that. But she really hits the ground running. She shows up. She's got to start doing these intercessory things right away. So what is this kind of received as in England when she shows up? How do people kind of feel about her? It's definitely mixed. But of course, because of the sources that come down to us are so often monastic sources, and mm. particularly many of the sources don't really like her husband. So they're a little bit biased in that many of the sources that have come down to us are things like this chronicler, Thomas Walsingham, who really doesn't like Richard. And so he is kind of like, eh. and came and it was, eh, you know, kind of met. A lot of the chroniclers really harp on she came and she didn't even have a dowry. OMG, <laughs> we had to pay for her. And she's just this, you know, little teenage girl. And she showed up with no money. And of course, they're always complaining about later on when things deteriorate even more for Richard and Anne. They're complaining about her bohemians, which has been reasonably explored. And I think scholars have done a good job of pointing out, yeah, this is just the way the English are. Like Anne's mm. bohemians, all of whom are not bohemian, but this is just a thing that the English always get mad about is mm. a queen comes. Of course, she has to bring some of her own people. And so some bohemians are still around and they're like, oh, I'm so annoyed that these bohemians are here. It really doesn't have that much to do with the bohemians themselves. They're mm. always going to mm. complain about that. Mm. So you get complaints about that for Anne saying, you know, uh, she showed up with all these grasping bohemians. But... At the same time, on the day of her coronation, the people of London give this petition to her and they say, please keep interceding for us. Our queens have done this and we want mm -hmm. you to do it too. And if you do a good job, we're going to like you a lot. And she obviously takes it to heart because she does that sort of stuff. And of course, later in the reign, Richard gets mad at London because they won't give him money. So he kind of goes off to York to sulk. And then London's like, <laughs> okay. This is kind of turning out to be a problem for us. So multiple people, it isn't just Anne, help smooth that over. But mm. Richard decides because the dude has a good sense of how to perform monarchy, which is, of course, a yeah. big thing in the English context. And Richard is excellent at it. He's like, this is an amazing opportunity for a performance. So there's this whole reconciliation performance that is put on by the city of London with Richard's input. And of course, certainly in the literary depictions of it that follow, Anne has a huge role. I mean, she has the starring role and the people of London really appeal to her in that. And they say, please help us out. We know that you can make him not mad at us anymore. And even though, of course, the whole reason we're having this is because he's gotten over it because you gave him a bunch of money. But in the depictions, Anne's like, I got you. 
So I think the people of London certainly liked her. So yes, of course, there's this sort of English xenophobia that they always have towards their immigrant queens that makes them say some bad things towards Anne. But I feel overall that people really liked her. And when I first started studying Anne and Richard, it was because I was interested in the childlessness aspect. And I was prepared to find more bad things because... For childlessness, what's so famous is Henry VIII, even though he was a childless, but he was even more hardcore and was like, basically, I'm childless if it's not a boy. So I was expecting people to say really nasty things and this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And I didn't see that, certainly not really with Anne. The things that they said that weren't nice were more typical English things. Uh, You know, she's not English. And people weren't really saying oh, she sucks because she never had a kid. And I think it's because she compensated well for that in other aspects Mm -hmm. of her life, that there are more things that queens need to do than just have children. Obviously, that's important. But she did an excellent job with the intercession and that sort of stuff. And I think that maybe that kind of helped compensate for it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Let's dig right into that, right? Because, you know, there's all these sorts of things that queens do, you know, like intercession and securing loans and high-level diplomacy, all kinds of things like that. But kind of the primary thing you're expected to do when you're a queen is have kids. And Anne doesn't make that happen. What do we kind of tend to see with that? Because I know that one of your big research areas is couples who can't have children. That's the primary expectation of women in the Middle Ages, like writ large, let alone queens. And then queens, it's like, oh, would you like that pressure turned up seven times? Have a baby, have a baby, have a baby, you know, while you're doing this really difficult diplomacy, please. (laughs) 
One thing that I found interesting, because of course, there's so much we can do nowadays with trying to fight fertility problems that obviously they Mm -hmm. could not do in the Middle Ages. But at the same time, they were doing a lot of things. And in researching Anne, she was definitely trying. She was Mm -hmm. uh, taking medicines. Certainly she and Richard were going on pilgrimages. They were together a lot because there's definitely some queens in other contexts, particularly the Spanish context. And it's kind of like, oh, why didn't they have kids? And then it's like, oh, because the entire time they were married, they lived in Spain and their husband was in Sicily. But Richard and Anne were together most of the time, it seems. So they were definitely trying, I would say. But yeah, it just didn't seem to happen. But people, that wasn't a major criticism in what has come down to us anyway. And I think maybe because she did the intercession, she was certainly religious. I mean, you know, everybody pretty much is. And so she certainly did things like donate money and, of course, going on the pilgrimages and that kind of thing. So she definitely did the proper pious queen aspect. Mm. She did the proper intercessory aspects. I feel as though she really hit all of the buttons, checked all the boxes, perhaps I should say, aside from the kid one. And you would think that's like the biggest failure. But there were other issues going on. And of course, with Richard ultimately being deposed, yeah, that of course started a different set of problems, but not immediately. Mm, and so mm. that was something that people had to worry about a couple generations later, not right then. So there can sometimes be this tension where if people like the king then they'll criticize the queen more because that's a safe thing so if they don't like richard then Anne looks better in comparison so on the one hand you've got that well richard's a bit of a jerk and no one particularly cares for him and at least Anne is doing the things that people actually want right but i think that there's also kind of a, a certain level of sympathy right you know in this box ticking exercise as you say in the going around and well you know she's gone on pilgrimage she's giving money to things she is pious you know she's doing all the things that she's supposed to be doing and it still doesn't happen it almost seems like there's a kind of a sense of sympathy for her where you're like oh yeah that's got to be hard right yeah and the other thing i found which again surprised me a little bit when doing the research about infertility is of course Medical things and, you know, general medieval misogyny. Yes, there was plenty of blame for women, but they still Mm. had that idea that kind of the opposite of Henry VIII. Henry VIII totally blamed everyone but himself. (laughs) And there was this idea in various medieval cultural kind of things, but even in medicine, that men could be at fault. Obviously, Mm. they didn't know all of the science, but... Considering they didn't, they had this idea that there are two seeds and, you know, you need, which is technically true. They had a lot of it wrong, but they did know that it could not be the woman's fault and that it was complicated. Mm -hmm. And so that might have helped as well. And of course, she died so young, nobody knew that Mm. was coming. I mean, yes, they had been married for 12 years at that point, but 28, that's not too old. I mean, it's actually probably kind of good for her own physical health that she didn't get pregnant right away because 16 is very young. And, you know, in the 13th century, there is some stuff with Eleanor of Provence and Eleanor of Castile saying like, we don't want our daughter, granddaughter 
getting married and going someplace quite yet. Like we yeah. need her to wait. So they did have that idea. So I think there's always mm. the possibility that it could happen. And maybe one other thing that maybe helped Richard psychologically or helped people psychologically that, of course, turned out to be a problem a couple of generations later. But the royal family at that time was pretty big. I mean, Richard's bit from his father was tiny because Richard's older brother died and then it was just him. But he had lots of uncles and all those uncles, they had kids. Three of the uncles were still around and very powerful. So there were certainly plenty of other options that helped people from not freaking out. I suppose we're guilty of being really reductive about this, saying, oh, that's the thing about queens is fecundity and fertility and becoming a mother and providing an heir. So it's funny because we will sort of lay that at the doorstep of medieval people at times and say, oh, well, that's what you want, right? The thing that you want in a queen is this, but maybe that's what we're trying to see. Yeah. And I think it also maybe helps mitigate because Anne came from such an amazing court and she had a lot of prestige as a person. And Mm. that could also help that she brought a lot of prestige to England. And Mm. I think some of the sources that have come down to us from the monks and stuff, they don't totally understand that. But Richard is the kind of person that understood that. And he would have cared and he would have liked that. (laughs) And so that helps. And of course, one other thing that I also found interesting, granted it comes from the chronicler Froissart, who is not always telling it Mm. exactly like it is, but I think it has potential to be true. Of course, after Anne dies, Richard eventually gets remarried. And the thing that really blows modern people's minds is he gets married to a child. And not like, oh, she's 16, but... uh, Child, child, like I just turned seven years old. And that is, whoa, to us, that really blows our minds. And there's someone that kind of says to Richard, like, "Uh, dude, shouldn't you maybe pick this Spanish princess? Because she's not a child. And Richard's like, no, it's fine. She'll come to England and she'll know how things are done in our court. And when she's old enough, she'll be perfect. And of course, even when he was negotiating with the French, Charles VI, all his daughters were quite young because he's Mm. like basically the same age as Richard. So if Richard had kids, they would also be quite young. And he's Mm. like, I have these cousins and there's tons of people running around. What about her? What about her? You know, there's all these women who are of age. But Richard says, no, that's okay. I want your daughter. I want a French princess. I don't want an almost princess. I want an actual princess. And he's like, okay, well, the oldest one is seven. He's like, it's fine. So I think that shows somewhat the importance of who you are, this negotiation, this prestige factor. Mm. And of course, Mm. obviously we know nowadays, oh, that was a bad move, Richard, because she's 10 years old when you get kicked off the throne. He doesn't know that's happening. He thinks he's going to have tons of time and that, you know, in 10 years, they'll have a kid and it'll be great. Maybe that could have happened. I mean, his wife in 10 years does have a kid, although it ends up not being great because she dies. So it's like it could have worked out fine, but we know it didn't. And I mean, I guess it's really important to someone like that, right? You cannot go from like bohemian princess slash empress down to like, you know, some noble, especially if what you're trying to say is that your court has all this cachet, you know, the pedigree of your wife is something that's actually on the table. And so talking of this, and you know, the cachet 
that a queen can bring, the kind of soft cultural influence, right? That's one of the things that Anne manages to do really well, right? Like she kind of gets off the boat eight million years later and, you know, yeah, she intercedes. But she's also like this fashion plate. And all the English are like, oh, and so she's got this incredible cultural impact, right? Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is one of the things that is so hard to trace in the mm. records that we have left because, like, did they not write it down? Did it get destroyed? Art historians have done so much good work, if this blows my mind, in tracing the probable bohemian influence because... For me, as a historian, I look at art and i like, that's pretty. I like it. <laughs> but they can look at art and be like, mm, yes, the way that eyebrow is drawn here is just the same style as that eyebrow is drawn over here in this very famous Czech Psalter. And I'm like, okay, I don't see it, but I trust you. So, yeah, there is a lot of that Czech bohemian artistic influence. It's hard as a historian be like, here's all the people that did it because they didn't write it down. So it's very much has to be a stylistic thing. Mm -hmm. But I think art historians have done a good job in pointing out all of those similarities. And I also think that scholars in literature have done a great job moving forward because they're, again, that sort of very narrow idea of patronage that mm -hmm. you paid for it and that's patronage. And again, the receipts are not there to show what books really Anne might have paid for. But the big one is Chaucer. There's certainly influence. Well, there's definitely influence. I mean, he writes in, what is it, The Legend of Good Women, like, take my book to the queen. Yep. So obviously he <laughs> wants her to know about him and he wants her to read his stuff. And for a long time, scholars were kind of trying to find the smoking gun uh, that she uh. paid him to do it. And if it's there, it's not there anymore. But... You don't have to be quite so narrow with mm. patronage that, oh, it doesn't count if she didn't pass him the money. He was definitely inspired by Anne. And so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I was writing something about her and, you know, obviously I'm just used to reading about her in Czech and like the Czech stuff. And so I was like, oh, I better go figure out what English people are saying about her. And I read this hilarious Victorian piece about her and this Victorian woman was just absolutely scathing about her and specifically about how she had all these fashionable influences. And she was probably taking on board what the Chronicle said. It's like, oh, and it's terrible that she's foreign. And I think there's also this kind of like Victorian snobbery about like English things being the best and like who even knows what a Czech person is anymore. It's She's like, well, she introduced all sorts of horrid things, like riding side saddle and those ugly pointed hats. And she had a very stupid crest, which was an ostrich with a bar in its mouth. And, it's, and she's just so mad at Anna Bohemia for being like, but I think it's very funny because, you know, when you ask people to draw medieval princess, you'll go off and get the two horned hats in there and things. And it's like, well, that's a Czech thing. And Anne was like, oh, hey, everybody like my hat? And everyone was like, you know, I do. That's very cool. And again, that's just English people being mm -hmm. xenophobic. So Anne probably came with the pointed shoes, which they often call Krakows in there, which, of course, makes it sound like they came from Poland, which maybe mm -hmm. they did. But, you know, of course, that would make sense because her mother's from that area. But there are chronicles from before Anne is even born that also complain about pointed shoes. So these pointed shoes are yeah. happening and they're just blaming it on a convenient foreigner. And kind of like 
people nowadays will sometimes exaggerate for rhetorical effect. Mm. Definitely, there seems to be some exaggeration for rhetorical effect going on when talking about those shoes and stuff. It's like, oh, they were so pointy. How pointy were they? They were so pointy, <laughs> you had to attach it to a chain to your knee so it didn't flop around. Okay, that would be kind of ridiculous. And like, we have not found any shoes that, mm. you know, have archaeologically made it. So unless they just burned all of the shoes or those really long shoes disintegrate extra fast, it was probably monks being monks. Just sitting around all day writing books about how everyone's shoes are too pointy and it's probably the princess's fault. You know, it's just... Uh... There's this one big influence. So, you know, we've been talking about the Czech influence in England, but there also then ends up being, as a result of Anne showing up here, this one big English influence back with the Czechs, right? Do you want to lead us in? I was just thinking about this yesterday in preparation for that, and I was thinking, I wonder how Anne would feel about this. And I feel like she would be sad. <laughs> she would be really sad. <laughs> she would be really sad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly because... Once the Protestant Reformation happened in England, some writers say like, oh yeah, she didn't have children, but she gave birth to this new movement in Bohemia. And they're like, big smiles, cause you know, they're Protestant and they see the Hussites as kind of their buds. But I'm like, oh man, Anne would be so sad <laughs> that they were like, ah, but she gave birth to this. She'd be like, no, no. No, don't do it, don't do it. Because yeah. of course she's just like Richard, very orthodox. So yes, of course, what we're talking about is the influence of Wycliffe and Lollards into Bohemia, where then it becomes known as the Hussites. So yep. by the time Anne gets there, John Wycliffe is dead, which of yep. course was another thing that scholars had to kind of unpack because earlier in the Victorian era, they were like, oh yeah, Anne interceded for John Wycliffe. And it's like, how? No, he was not. dead <laughs> and she was still in the Czech Republic. So that's going to be hard. But because of the trade and just people going back and forth, we seem to see more of an intellectual influence kind of flowing into Bohemia. But, you know, as Lollardy becomes more not just an intellectual exercise, that, of course, is what heads over into Bohemia. And they really take it and run with it. Jan Hus <laughs> is like, this is awesome. And he starts preaching it and gets all kinds of people on his side. And it becomes a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> like a way bigger deal than it became in England. And then they have their own peasant uprisings <laughs> that really kind of put the Peasants Revolt of 1381 to shame. That looks tiny and pathetic. And then, of course, you know, Richard's crackdown. That looks very sweet and old-fashioned in comparison to Sigismund's crackdown, <laughs> which was much more intense. <laughs> it's funny, right? Because just, you know, how history has shaken out, and because, you know, well, here you and I are speaking English to each other. There tends to be this real premium put on England in the Middle Ages to the detriment of other places like, you know, Bohemia, which is incredibly important. But this is this one case where England does actually really change the course of a culture which had never happened up to this point. In the Middle Ages, you know, the English had absolutely nothing to do with Bohemia and it just sort of was what it was. And I think that's really interesting to kind of keep in mind is that it's not just that queens come over and they bring whatever it is to the place that they're going. You are saying that you're opening up these two kingdoms to travel and trade and cultural shifts and expectations. So a royal marriage, it's not just between two people. It really is 
these two kingdoms. And I don't know, sometimes you get the first very successful Christian rebellion as a result of it. And maybe it's because Czech scholars have been more interested in it and have been studying it more. But the way the scholarship is right now, you certainly have a better sense that a lot of Czech people came and went back and forth than we do English Mm -hmm. people going the other way. You know, maybe Czech were better travelers at the time because there's clearly a lot of back and forth going that you don't see as much. And maybe it's just we haven't looked for it Mm. as much on the English way. But yeah, lots of Czech people are coming and going back and they're taking stuff with them. And some of that stuff is lollardy. You know, hundreds of years later, some of that stuff is me. Hey, (laughs) you know, like, look at that. Look at that. It's a legacy, baby. But I could literally talk about Anne all day long, but we are yeah, going to have to so let Yeah, she's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> she's so cool. But we are going to have to let, I think, our listeners off the hook. So, Kristen, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you. And I guess I just want to plug in, I'm very happy that we're getting to talk about Anne. And because, again, in the English context, I feel like she's been kind of forgotten because there are some really outstanding queens of England who... Mm appeal to our modern sensibilities like Eleanor of Aquitaine, like Isabella of France, Edward II's wife, like Margaret of Anjou, that are literally kicking butt and taking names. And we're like, yeah. yeah. And Anne's not doing that. She doesn't need to do that. But of course, by medieval standards, she's way more successful than those queens. And so I think studying the queens that are doing what they're supposed to is mm. maybe not as sexy, appealing when you want someone that you can... I don't know, make a cross stitch up or something. But it gives us a better sense of what medieval queens needed to do and certainly helps us see that medieval queens were powerful and important, even if they weren't doing something outside the box, like leading an army or overthrowing their own husband. (laughs) I mean, that's a really good point. You know, why for a queen to be good, do we want her to behave like a man? You know, that's on us. That's about our own kind of gendered expectations, right? So, hmm, more fool me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. And thank you once again to Kristen for joining me. This has been Gone Medieval by History Hit. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast, and please tell your friends about it. If you're looking for more medieval goodness in your life, like myself, you can subscribe to our Medieval Monday newsletter by following the link in the show notes below. If you fancy suggesting an episode, you can drop us an email at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. Otherwise, I'll be back again next Tuesday for another episode, and my co-host Matt Lewis will be back on Friday. Until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers. 
providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.